Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Adam begins with paragraph 2759 and concludes his discussion of the Catechism with the Our Father. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we go into the very last um, portion of our journey through the Catechism. We um, begin today with paragraph 2759. So, this part for the Catechism, as, as we're reminded, is on prayer and the life of prayer. And if you remember, the four pillars of the Catechism, the four parts of the Catechism, um, really have a similar structure. The first part of the first section of, of, of each part consists of really the um, um, kind of the basic principles of, of the um, corresponding part. So, you know, in the, the first part deals with um, revelation, what God has revealed to us. The second part deals with the seven sacraments. The third part deals with morality. And the um, fourth part deals with prayer. Well, so the first part is these sort of general principles. And we've just finished up the general principle part of prayer um, in our last session. Um, But the structures of each of the parts also have sort of a, what we might call a paradigm, a model to illustrate or to further or deepen the explanation of um, the basic principles. So, for instance, the first part, in the first half of it, we might say, are the the, begi- the principles of revelation, scripture, faith. Um, but then it goes with the creed, and it goes um, line by line through the creed. The second part, you know, the principles of the liturgy, but then each of the seven sacraments. Um, the third part on morality, the, fir- the basic principles of morality, and then the Ten Commandments themselves. Well, the same structure is here for the fourth one, so we've gone through these basic principles. Now the Catechism presents to us the Our Father as sort of a model for prayer, as a way to kind of flesh out what prayer is and what it means. This has really been the model of the church from the beginning, the church's catechesis, is um, those four things, the creed, the seven sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Our Father, are really at the core, the root um, summary of the church's teaching, of what she has received from Christ, what has been handed on by the tradition. And they've always kind of been a part of our catechesis. Um, Fathers of the church would go through the creed, would go through the seven sacraments, would go through the Ten Commandments, and would go through the Our Father to educate their people. When the catechisms were being written, um, especially in response to the Reformation, so the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Catechisms of Robert Bellarmine, of Peter Canisius, um, they all kind of hit these things, creed, sacraments, Ten Commandments, Our Father. And so this catechism is really um, the catechism which John Paul II gave us, which um, Pope Francis has recently Revised, um, although it's a very minor revision, we, you know, it, it's not of any huge significance. Um, nonetheless, um, this catechism, which is really we might say the catechism of the Second Vatican Council, um, 
is faithful to the tradition of catechesis over the over the the ages in the life of the church. Now, with all that said, um, let's really look at um, what's before. So we begin again, as I said, twenty seven fifty nine is our paragraph, and we're going to go to the very last paragraph of the catechism, which is paragraph twenty eight sixty five. So roughly a hundred uh, paragraphs today. And it really is just the Our Father. If you're looking for a meditation on the Our Father, um, this is, I mean, this is priceless, um, these paragraphs. So, first of all, the Catechism reminds us the origin of the Our Father, that this is the prayer which Jesus Christ has taught us. And we see it um, in two places in Scripture, in the Gospel of Luke, um, and then also in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's in Luke um, 11, chapter 11, um, primarily 2 through 4, um, even probably a little earlier, 1 through 4. Um, and then it's in Matthew, which is uh, chapter 6, 9 through 13. There are two versions. The liturgical tradition, the one which we are um, faithful to, that we kind of pray daily really multiple times during the day in the life of the church is the one taken from saint matthew um, saint luke's version consists of five petitions while matthew's consists of seven petitions what the catechism is going to do is divide up the um the whole the whole um our Father into these seven sections, these seven sections, um, and um, and and with it also an introduction. So there's sort of an introduction that's built into the Our Father. Twenty-seven sixties. It's an, a very important um, paragraph, and it it's I think it's a um, it addresses a very frequent, frequently asked question about um, the Our Father. So. You know the uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, whatever, however you you know, whichever name you want to use. Um, in a liturgical context, has always been connected with what we call a doxo what we call a doxology, uh, doxology, and and this has been really from the earliest writings we have of the Church. So there are two very very early documents we're talking. I mean, at the time perhaps of of um, of the life of the apostles um, or certainly shortly after the death of the apostles um, the Didache and the Apostolic Constitutions both of them say that in praying the Lord's Prayer they also um, add to it a doxology so in the Didache it's for yours are the power and the glory forever in the Apostolic Constitutions it, they add the kingdom um, of course, in our own celebration of the Mass, um, we add for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever, that doxology to it. Um, and a lot of um, Protestants will, um, when they pray the Our Father, they pray this. What we would say is, you know, the Lord's Prayer is the Lord's Prayer. It's what is there in Matthew. Um that doxology is not problematic. In fact, the church has been um, using it from the very beginning. And I, I think that's kind of an interesting little irony that the Protestant version of the Our Father, which includes that doxology, um, one, it's not scriptural. I mean, in the sense that that doxology was not added in Matt. It's not there in Matthew's version. It's not there in Luke's version. Um I do believe that in some tra um, translations of the Bible that has been inserted in there, but it's not in the original Greek text. What's interesting, though, is that that, that Protestant version of the prayer, which includes that doxology, it's actually part of the tradition of the church from the very early beginning, from um, the Didache and the Apostolic Constitution. So... Um, our Protestant brothers and sisters are kind of faithfully witnessing to um, the need for tradition and the existence of tradition um, in the life of the church as they pray the Our Father. Um, that that last segment, that doxology, is actually um, something 
which has been handed on from the tradition of the church, which has not been handed on from sacred scripture, or at least as witnessed in sacred scripture. So it's an interesting little um, thing, but um, we should not have any problem (coughs) in certain contexts in adding that doxology. It's just that the tradition has only really associated the adding of that doxology to the Our Father, to the scriptural Lord's Prayer, in the liturgical context. So as we do at Mass, we add that doxology shortly after praying the Lord's Prayer um, in faithfulness to um, the tradition as it's been handed on since really um, the time of the Apostles. As we proceed then, kind of giving that little background in those two paragraphs, the Catechism reminds us that the importance of the Lord's Prayer, that it really is um, a summary of the whole gospel. Um, You know, and often we'll hear this in homilies that, you know, rabbis would give their followers, their disciples, um, a prayer as sort of a summary of their of their message. Now, I don't know um, how, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge expert on those sort of sources of rabbinic um, pedagogy at the time of Christ, but certainly, you know, Christ gives us the Our Father as, as, as the summary of his, of his teaching, you know, at the heart of his teaching. And it's really at the center of the scripture. If you think that, um, the law and the prophets and the psalms are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that the heart of Christ's revelation is teaching is the gospel and where is um, kind of um, a great content of the message of Jesus Christ what he is revealing well it's on the Sermon on the Mount well the Our Father is given the Lord's Prayer is given within the context of the Sermon of the Mount the Catechism will tell us this so really even from a, a, a sense of the centrality of his teaching, the Our Father is there, the Lord's Prayer is there. Why do we call it the Lord's Prayer, the Catechism then deals with, um, Oratio Dominica? Um, because it is the prayer which the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us. It is a prayer ultimately to the Father. Now, Jesus doesn't just give us some formula to repeat mechanically. Now, if if we've read all, if we've read the whole content of of the gospel, we'll know um, the um, we'll know what um, you know what what he said about prayer, and that it's really not about useless words. And the idea, then, though, I mean, and, and one might see a certain contradiction in that. So he's giving us a rote prayer, a set prayer, but then he's also telling us. Not to say a rope prayer. Now, you'll have people that interpret that. Well, of course, he's not saying don't use a memorized prayer or a pre-written prayer. What we need to do is make sure we're praying those from the heart. Um, we're praying those um, really expressing our desire and the desires which the word communicates. Um, so we should not see a, a sort of a, a contradiction. The Lord does not contradict himself. What we do is we misinterpret what the Lord says um, and create contradictions in our minds. But the Lord gives us um, the Our Father. He asks us to pray it. Um, and he asks us to pray it with our full heart and with full intention. Very early in the life of the church, the Our Father, um, and this is talked about in paragraph 2767 the um, our father really became the central prayer in the, the life of the church you know an important prayer in the life of the church it was customary in judaism and um, jewish piety to pray what was called the 18 benedictions three times during the day um, and the christian community the, the uh, first christians the church the early church um, took on this work, but replaced the Our Father for those um, 18 benedictions. And certainly it's been rooted in the liturgical life of the church. We see that in those early documents, the Didache and the Apostolic Constitutions. Um, in the initiation of new Christians and baptism and confirmation, from what we can gather from patristic sources and commentaries on the Our Father is that 
um, those coming into the church would be presented with the bapt with with the Lord's prayer. So those to be baptized, those to be confirmed, would be um, in a sense handed on to that. Um, we see in in some sort of creative interpretations of these sources where someone will calligraphy um, the Our Father, and may, you know people in RCIA they hand it over to them. You know, I want to add that um, we we don't know precisely what the initiation of Christians looked like. We know um, a lot about baptism. We know a lot about um, the Eucharist and confirmation, and um, that those are definitely parts of it. We um, have sermons and catechetical talks from many different fathers of the church about what the new members, those coming into the church, were taught. We also have these vague references, and from these sort of kind of vague, unclear references, um, the rite of Christian initiation of adults was created, um, you know, after the Second Vatican Council. There was the desire of the bishops to restore um, sort of the more formal rites rather than just doing... Um, the initiation in the church as something as a private thing, but to make it more kind of ecclesially and, and more communal um, so that people could kind of partake in this and, and also trying to be as faithful as we could to what the tradition had handed on to us for the initiation of um, new Christians. Um, but honestly, and, and if, if people are honest, we really don't know precisely what it looked like in the early church. Um, but nonetheless, we do know that um, giving the Lord's Prayer, giving the Our Father, um, both in instruction and teaching the, the catechumens about the Our Father, um, but also in a sense is having them recite it, um, was something very important in the process of initiation. And even still in baptism, I mean, even at infant baptism, after the child is baptized, the Our Father is prayed. Usually the um, family and the child process up to the altar. It's a reminder that this child has received God as his father and is now able to call upon him or her, or call upon God as as his father. Um, and um, because of the gift of new life in baptism, the, um, the gift of new birth in baptism. Um, certainly the Our Father was always a part of the Eucharistic celebration of the Mass from the very beginning. Um, and, and in fact, in those sources from the Didache and the Apostolic Constitutions, that's um, pretty clearly mentioned. So we, remem we remember that this really is the centrality of it, it's at the heart of Christ's teaching, um, the Our Father. And it's really, we would even say, it's at the heart of the life of the church, too, um, which springs from Christ. So the Catechism now, having introduced um, the Our Father and its importance, first goes with the opening line. And we might say this is kind of the intro um, part, the pre, you know, the preamble. Um, the preface of the Our Father, and that is Our Father who art in heaven. Um, first, we're reminded that we dare to say, you know, in the Mass, the priests will say, you know, um, you know, we, we dare to say, and then we launch into the Our Father. Well, the idea that, um, you know, calling upon God as our Father is, uh, is an audacious move um, from a certain perspective that we lowly creatures could do that. But because of what Jesus, and especially um, lowly creatures who have been affected by the fall, um, but the audacity to call upon God the Father is only possible because Jesus Christ, because we have become adopted sons and daughters of the Father through the gift of baptism. Um, we are able to call upon him and really kind of enter into the life of the Trinity. So we think about that, um, even with our ability to say, to know and say the Our Father, how audacious, how wonderful that is um, for us to be able to do it. And so, Father, what do we mean by Father? Well, you know, 
clear enough, um, we are calling upon, um, you know, a father. Um, and there's a certain humility there, um, a certain humility there. One, you know, to recognize that we're creatures, to recognize that this is only possible because of Jesus Christ, because of the Son who has suffered and died for us and given us new life and baptism as his disciples. Um, but it also, along with this humility, requires a certain purification, a purification from the world, um, a purification from our understanding of fatherhood, and for that, um, even the um, image of parenthood, you know, of maternal or fraternal, um, paternal images, um, a certain purification from whatever cultural situation we may come from, and for that matter, from whatever um, family situation, for good or for worse that we've come from, that this father of ours transcends all other categories of the created world. Um, and I think this is important. You know, so so many people, um, um, well, you know, will complain about the paternal language of the church that we use all these paternal paternal language but you know rather than it being something um, that hurts those who have had fa who have father wounds or have you know issues with their parents or issues with you know whatever the case might be really what we should do is this this paternal language is a real challenge for us to transcend this world and to transcend you know with a new mind a new way of thinking transcend um, this world um, it's an opportunity really to be cleansed um, from this world so rather than trying to change it you know some some rather creative people who have probably performed invalid sacraments will say, you know, our father slash mother or, you know, our mother or our parent or whatever. Well, let's let's just deal with the real issue. You know, it's not the words that Jesus has given us. That's not our problem. The, you know, the problem are the wounds that we bear or the cultural or personal experiences that we have. How about we embrace the fact that Jesus has given us this word and then have it change our life, give it a, a genuine freedom, um, that authentic freedom that only Christ can give us. Um, but perhaps I've said too much on that topic. Um, <clears throat> we're able to do this because the Father has revealed himself to us. Uh, of course, the fullness of that revelation is in Jesus Christ. Um, also, we're able to call him Father because we're in communion with him, with the Son, um, that we are adopted children. This is really um, 2779 through 2782. The other thing, though, is that the Our Father reveals to us our own identity. It reveals to us who we are. It, it's, it's not just saying that we have this Father and that in all audacity we are able to approach him as adopted sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. But it also reminds us of our identity, and I think that's why the our Father is repeated so often each day in our lives, is we need to take ownership of that identity, that we have a Father and we are his sons and daughters. It's something that bears repeating over and over and over again, and that we have a new life. Um, because of the gift of new life, the Our Father, I think, really hope opens us up to two dispositions, the Catechism says, two fundamental dispositions. First of all, it, it opens us up to a desire to become like God, to be like our Father, to respond to the grace, to let his will be done in our life. Um, the second is... Um, it really enables us to have a humble um, and trusting heart, to really be children, to be children that turn to the Father in our need, in trust, uh, when we're afraid. 
Um, so the Our Father, that Father part. But then the Catechism, then in 2786, it switches to the Our part. And it reminds us that this Our, this adjective, is not so much a possession in the possessive sense, but that really, um, it, it, it really talks to us more about um, our new relationship. Um, that there's a new way of being um, and and this hour reminds us of this um, first of all it's a reminder that we're really in a new and eternal covenant with him we've entered into a new life with him we're sharing really a life with him we're sharing a relationship with him that's um, a complete and utter gift um, it also reminds us that we have a certain destiny with God. Um, our hope um, with a great certitude is based on the promises of God. Um, certainly, in that sense of our Father, we are taking that on in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the means by which we are able to even pray this prayer to say, Our Father. Um, and the Catechism's does a really good job in 2789 of reminding us that when we pray um, and when we pray the Our Father, we're not just praying to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. We're praying to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are consubstantial and indivisible, the Catechism reminds us. That when we pray to the Father, we adore and glorify him together with the Son and the Holy Spirit. In a sense, um, we're joining the Son and the Spirit in calling upon the Father when we pray the Our Father. Um, from, a, from another important point, this Our reminds us that we are united not just with the three persons of the Trinity as we're praying the Our Father, or you know, be, as, as the prayer reminds us, but also we're united with the whole church, including those who are in heaven. And therefore, it really, I think that our part challenges us further with this identity. That yes, we have a father, we're sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters. But really, um, it, it kind of, as the catechism says, it leaves all individualism behind. You know, in our age... Um, especially here in America, there's so much about identity politics um, that, well, you know, I am this type of American or I'm a member of this party or I'm a member of this race or I'm a member of this ethnicity or, you know, whatever it may, you know, whatever, you know, we're always building identity around things that individuate rather than what unites. And, and I'm not even saying that we build an identity on, say, being Americans. What we do is we build our identity on what unites in the sense of being sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, being disciples of Jesus Christ. And so when we, when we pray, Our Father, we're putting behind us all of these, and I, and I would dare even say, lies of the world that try to individuate us, us who are sons and daughters of our Father through baptism. Um, so then um, the next part of this intro, entrance is, intro, intro is who art in heaven. So our Father who art in heaven. Of course, this is not so much about a space or a place, but rather a way of being. Um, our Father is not elsewhere. He is transcend. Um, he transcends everything, um, but he is, in a sense, um, present to us through d divine eminence. Now, when we, um, you know, it's it's interesting that this section on the Our Father, it's it's intimately connected to the other parts of the Catechism. So, you know, we've been talking about some liturgical aspects here. But the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is connected to this part of the Catechism. The idea of God's presence um, in, in, by divine eminence, the, thing, the, re, the, the fact that through his transcendence he upholds all of the universe. Um, he keeps everything in existence. In that sense, he is present 
to all of creation, not in, certainly not in the way that he, um, he's present in the Eucharist, but nonetheless, um, you know, he is sustaining the world. This idea that who art in heaven, he's not far and distant. Um, his mode of being is, um, is really quite close to us, though quite transcendent. Um, it also, um, who are in heaven, reminds us that the hour of our Father, this is also the church triumphant in heaven, that we are joining the saints as well. Then the um, catechism will go through the seven petitions of our Father. So to kind of summarize them, the first of the seven. So our Father who art in heaven is sort of the intro. Then there's hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then finally number seven is but deliver us from evil. So they're kind of divided into seven petitions. Um, so we might call them seven petitions or seven blessings. The first three, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, are more theological. Um, they also um, tend to, um, in a sense, carry us towards the Lord more. Um, so they're really kind of um, asking um, for things really, he might say, for the Father, but of course, you know, the Father is well provisioned. He, you know, um, he, he does not need what we offer him, um, but he gladly takes our all. Um, you know, the, the none, nonetheless, those three petitions are really we're not even talking about ourselves there. We're really kind of giving him the honor and the glory. It's then in the last four petitions that we're really asking for ourselves. Uh, we're commending our weakness to the Lord. Um, the first three petitions, thy name, thy kingdom, and thy will, you know, those have all, in a sense, been answered by Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. Um, the name, you know, the, 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 the name has been hollowed, the will has been done, and the kingdom has come, you know. Um, the second series, they say, of petitions, the catechism is going to say, and this is 2805, it kind of mirrors the Eucharist. So, you know, we lift up to in the in the sacrament, and then Christ or the Lord draws down. He comes down. He sends forth the Holy Spirit upon us. Um, so let's uh, begin by kind of working our way through these petitions. So first of all, hallowed be Thy name. Well, you know, we're reminded throughout the Catechism of the importance of the name of God. So. We got this in the Revelation section that God reveals His name, Yahweh, I am who am, and that the and that He reveals His the, the fullness of His revelation in the name of Jesus. Um, we're reminded in the commandments um, that the um, to honor the name of the Lord, um, and and also even in the um, earlier um, the earlier part of on the section on prayer we're reminded that the um, um, the the that we pray in the name of Jesus Christ so you know this is this is sort of an important theme that is you know covered and, and hit again again the catechism reemphasizes these themes throughout it's all beautifully interconnected this idea of hallowing the name of Jesus. So when we think, well, how can we make things holy? Um, it's interesting. Some people also might um, say have problems about, um, you know, uh, you know, when there's a uh, prayer. It, it, you know, like so. For instance, in the divine praises, blessed be God, blessed be His holy name. Well, how are we blessing God? How are we making Him holy? How are we hallowing His name? Well, what we're 
what we're essentially doing there is it should be understood as praise and thanksgiving, that we're kind of lifting up to you, Lord, an adoration um, to your name. That's what we mean by hallowed be thy name. But also in the sense um, that he might let his name be um, be a blessing and be reverenced throughout the world. Um, you know, in the sense that everyone might, um, that he, he might reveal his name to all people too. So we can see it in, in two different ways is the adoration of the name, like we're, we're really giving him adoration and praise. That's what we mean by hallowed, hallowed, praise your name. Um, but also like, you know what, let your name be known, um, to those who do not know it. Um, so the other, you know, interesting little point that the catechism makes in 2813 about this petition of hallowed be thy name is, you know, each of us have received the name of the father, you know, um, at our baptism, we are marked by the cross. We, um, you know, receive the name of Jesus, you know, we receive the, our father, um, and so, in a sense, we bear his name, you know, almost like um, in the human sense where you bear the surname, the last name of your father. Um, we bear the name of our father. And so we're just asking him in that petition to to really make us holy um, as well, that we might um, in our life, in the bearing of the name of the father, um, edify him, um, lift it up. Um, help to reveal the holiness of it. And it kind of connects, I think, both to our life of prayer, to the moral life. Um, and I would even um, draw the connection to evangelization, too, that um, in that petition, hallowed be thy name, we're really asking that people might come to know the name of the Lord and that we might be a fitting witness um, to the name of the Lord. The second petition is thy kingdom come. And the catechism does a really wonderful job of addressing the question. So how is this kingdom going to come? So first of all, the catechism tells us that the kingdom of God lies ahead of us. However, it is brought near in the word incarnate when Jesus Christ took on our human nature. The kingdom became present. It is proclaimed throughout the whole gospel. You know, So we proclaim the kingdom. And it has come, ultimately, in the death and resurrection of Christ. The kingdom has been established by Christ's death and resurrection. Um, and in the Eucharist, um, well, the, uh, the Catechism says, the kingdom of God has been coming since the Last Supper, and in the Eucharist, it is in our midst. The kingdom of God is already in our midst in the Eucharist. At every Mass from the Last Supper, the First Mass. At every Mass, the kingdom has come and comes. And then, of course, it will come in glory when Christ hands it over to the Father. So we've got to, we've got to kind of balance all these things in our minds that the kingdom has come, is coming, is here, and will come um, in all of its fullness. Um the you know it's interesting in these um, in these parts in this part of the catechism especially on the Our Father there's a there's some social um, teaching of the church that's interjected into um, the Our Father I think it's just another beautiful example of the cross connections of all the parts of the catechism so paragraph twenty eight twenty is about this too where um, Christians have to distinguish between the growth of the reign of God and the progress of culture and society, which they are involved in, um, and to make sure that um, justice and peace are um, reigning. You know, that this really, this challenge of thy kingdom come reminds us, and, and it goes to this earlier point that I made, um, that, you know, it really challenges us to look beyond our own civil culture, um, our own cultural sit situation, our own, own Zitzenleben, as the Germans would say, 
um, to kind of look beyond that and to recognize that we're actually a part of an infinitely greater thing. Um, and I think when, when all we do is consume news, and especially on politics, and when we really reduce um, Catholicism to advocacy um, and political advocacy, we fail to lose sight. We get stuck in a trap um, that we actually really transcend time um, as being a part of the Father's kingdom. The third petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're just reminded of God's will, um, God's real desire um, for all people to come to know him um, in Christ and through his human will, the will of the Father has been perfectly fulfilled once and for all. So again, we're pointing to Christ and to the sacrifice on the cross when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But, you know, that whole desire for the salvation of souls, we're really asking for that. Um, the Catechism makes that clear that, that that's one of the, the big things of his will that we're really asking for. Um, but it's also an invitation to us to embrace the will of God that's in our life, how providence is unfolding. And, you know, again, it, it goes back to the creed, section, creed part of the catechism. And we're reminded of the will of God and the problem of evil and all of those things that what we, what we know is, you know, God has a permissive will and he has a direct will. You know, there are some things that he directly intends the good in our life and then there are other things which he permits in order to bring an infinitely greater good out of and the catechism had earlier in the in the principles on prayer reminded us that when we when we hit a roadblock in prayer when we think god's not listening to us what we do is we have to step back and ask are we really expecting god to do our will or are we accepting the will of god the will of the Father. And so this this petition in the Our Father really challenges us. The fourth petition, remember there's seven of them. The fourth is give us this day our daily bread. So first of all, it expresses this sort of trust that we have as children. The Lord himself says, you know, what father would give his child a scorpion or what father would give him, you know, a snake? Um it also reminds us um, that there's a certain covenant here with us, that the Lord has made promises to us. The idea of bread is certainly, you know, that we trust that the Father who has given us life um, um, is also going to nourish us. That if he's gotten us into this, he's going to get us through it. Um, we're also um, reminded that, um, you know, the idea that um, in praying for our our bread, um, the bread that we need, what nourishes us, um, we we're given really this great wisdom that Saint. It's attributed to Saint Ignatius of Loyola that you um, you pray as if all things depend on God and work as if all things depend upon you, and this is the perfect kind of balance. Is that the Our Father strengthens us, um, you know, to trust in the Lord, to beg and plead for the Lord, but also um, that we might also cooperate with him in, in working for what we need as well. Um, and it is a mysterious intersection, um, the Father's care for us and our freedom and cooperation. Um, and that really is, I think, is an important thing that we have to get right in the spiritual life or else we're going to get into real trouble if we really do think it just is what I have to do my work what I have to do the, the spiritual exercises I have to do we're going to get into some real problems we really call that Pelagianism um, but we also um, you know have to know that we are cooperating with the Lord in this life too um, the daily aspect is, is an interesting point. So this word daily, it's epeusios, and you hear this. Some pretty good um, Catholic commentators have, have caught this, and they will emphasize this. So 
Epi, Epi, Epiusios daily has a couple different sense. It could mean from a temporal sense, this day. Um, so therefore, um, that we're kind of confirmed that let's live in the present. If 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 you want to interpret Epiusios like that, let's live in the present. The the Lord is is you know let's be attentive to the reality before us that the Father is going to take care of us. Um, in a certain broader sense, um, it is of course of life, of this life, this day, the day of our life, you know, our whole life, and so whatever we're going to need in this time here on earth. But there's also another sense, and it's really the literal sense. And that is, um, epiusios could mean super essential, or some people would say super substantial. Um, and in that sense, it, it points to not what we need for the reality before us, not what we need in this life, but rather the one, the bread that transcends all things, time and space that is super essential, that is above. And that, of course, points to Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, and to the Eucharist, um, his presence here on earth, um, body and blood, soul and divinity. So really, in the Our Father, you know, we're, you know, when we pray, um, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying, um, first of all, for the nourishment that we need, we're praying for whatever we might need. We're praying for whatever we might need here and now in the reality before us. Um, we, we're also praying for what we need in this life. And we're also praying for the one thing, for the one who is the promise of eternal life, Jesus Christ, who is the super substantial, the, the super essential um, the one who is essential, you know, who is above all things, who and who transcends time and space, this Jesus Christ. Um, we're really asking for Christ, which is, again, a reminder that the Our Father is a prayer to the whole Trinity, really. The fifth petition, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, it really evokes and reminds us of that parable with the... Um, the tax collector who is, you know, beating his breast, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a reminder of our own weakness, um, that we are in need of forgiveness. Um, but also it's a reminder that it's impossible for us to keep the Lord's commandments by imitating the divine model from outside. There has to be a participation coming from the depth of the heart in the holiness and the mercy and the love of God. This is 2842. Um, that we really have to be kind of drawn into the Lord for us to really be able to follow the commands of the Lord, to keep them, um, to really share this life with him. Um, and um, part of that is you know, taking on the view of the Father, and that is mercy towards others, forgiving others of their trespasses. Um, and certainly at the heart of that is the forgiveness of enemies. The Catechism points out that there is a slight distinction. Luke uses sin, although, um, and then Matthew uses debts. Um, it's a reminder that whether it be moral issues or whether it be our, our, our existence, you know, that what we owe the Lord, you know, we're completely and utterly dependent, you know, um, upon him it's our whole self that um that we wish to be drawn up to the lord and and um the sixth the sixth um petition is and lead us not into temptation now this one has been there's been some recent controversy um in the translation of the our father in italian um recently the mass in Italian was retranslated. They, they, you know, they they updated the translations from the Latin text, and there was some change in the Italian um, "Our Father," and it was really um, in this section. So, and lead us not into temptation. Well, we're reminded, um, and the Catechism reminds us that same that Saint James in his letter 
reminds us that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. And this is, there's an unfortunate kind of error, you know, that, um, well, you know, the Lord keeps tempting me, or, um, you know, the Lord puts these temptations in my life, or the Lord tests me, or the Lord's putting all these tests in my life. Now, first of all, um, you know, we have to hold to that from James, that the Lord, um, the Lord does not tempt anyone, um, that, you know, temptations comes from some other source, and that the Lord, you know, in the end of the day, um, you know, although he permits evil in order to bring a greater good out, he permits suffering in order to bring a greater good out of it, um, ultimately the Lord isn't trying to trap us, um, and he's, you know, he's really on our side. He wants us to make the right decisions. Um, he's rooting for us. Um, nonetheless, he permits these things for some reason, you know, and, and at some point it will be revealed to us. But we we gotta we have to make clear that that's not, you know, when we're saying, and lead us not into temptation, that somehow God is, you know, please do not test us, do not tempt us, do not, you know all these different things. We have to be really careful because um, there is um, a perspective on God that is contrary to, to Christianity that's part of prevalent culture. And that is that, you know, that this God is somehow far and distant and removed from us, um, that he likes to throw lightning bolts at us from time to time, that he, you know, likes to... Th- um, throw things at us to test us. He likes to throw things at us to punish us. He likes to throw things at us to tempt us. Um, the, uh, the Our, this is not what the Our Father is evoking. Um, but rather, um, we might say that um, the, um, what, we're, what we're really praying for is um, that the Lord help us to discern between trials which are necessary for the growth of the inner human. Um, 2847, paragraph 2847 in the Catechism, and temptations which lead us to sin and death. Um, there's a real difference between the two. You know, there are trials which the Lord permits, and that's part of his permissive will, that he permits for us so that we might grow. Um, and you know, a lot of those are um, that are just tests before us as as we stumble through this world, um, and as we mature and as we grow, um, there are things that we come to realize that appear to be trials, but really they're just life lessons. Um, you know, um, opportunities for us to grow. Um, versus real temptation, um, we must. Be, discern between being tempted and consenting to temptation and that's the other thing is temptations in themselves are not evil um, and they're not sin Um, it is when our heart um, when we make a decision of a heart to respond to a temptation to go after a temptation it's then that we have gone into sin so um, you know Again, we we have to kind of make all of these crucial distinctions because, unfortunately, people have um, have have misinterpreted this. The catechism, and I should emphasize that the, the catechism says um, the Greek verb that's used is very difficult to translate into English, which is part of the problem. But it means. The Greek means do not allow us to enter into temptation and do not let us to yield to temptation. So, you know, if you want to use another Catholic ease, you know, Lord, don't let us fall into the near occasion of sin and and don't let us yield into or, you know, fall into or respond um, wrongly to the near occasion of sin or to... And, of course, there is a difference between near occasion of sin and temptation, not to get us even more off the the point but the the key being that um, first of all we're really asking the Lord to keep us 
from things that might tempt us and then keep us from responding to those. So the temptations themselves are not evil in themselves. Um, you know, they're, they're not sin. Um, but when we yield to them, when we concede to them, it is then that we fall into sin. So the Catechism does a really good job of, of pointing those out. Um, it also, this petition of not leading us in temptation is a reminder that really the great victory over sin the, um, is possible because of a regular prayer life. And if there's a sin that we're falling into that we just can't beat, the first question that we need to ask is, am I praying every day? Am I really giving my heart to the Lord each day in time for prayer? And that's the key to the battle. Um, that's the first question that we've got to ask in those situations. The seventh petition, the last petition, but deliver us from evil. Um, this prayer is actually in that high priestly prayer um, from the Gospel of John, the Catechism. In um, Well, John 17, the Catechism, of course, treats that prayer to some length, at least about five or six petition or five or six paragraphs. Um, but the Lord Jesus Christ has prayed for us that we not fall into evil. Um, and of course, the evil that's being talked here is the devil himself um, and his uh, traps to catch us. Um, but we're reminded that there's already victory over Satan. Jesus Christ has won, has won. Um, he has delivered us from evil. He delivered, and it's beautiful, paragraph 2853, beautiful paragraph and it talks about Our Lady, how, you know, really Our Lady is the fulfillment of this promise that she's been delivered from evil, you know, by the Immaculate Conception, by her Assumption. Um, you know, in, in Revelation um, chapter 12, you know, there's the story of the image of this woman who is, it's Our Lady, the mother of the church, the mother of Jesus Christ, um, and how she is delivered from evil, from Satan. So we pray for that, too, for ourselves. The evils of our present, of our past, and of our future, which Satan is the author and instigator of. The Catechism ends, and as we wrap up, 2855 and 2856, just really with explaining that final doxology, which is used in liturgical texts and which our Protestant brothers and sisters have inserted into their um, daily or normal recitation of the Our Father, and that is for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Um, it is a reminder, um, really, I, can, I think in response to deliver us from evil, that we have already been delivered from the evil one, um, and that Christ, um, the Son of the Father, is the ruler of this world um, now. And then, of course, it ends with amen, which simply means um, this isn't the first time the catechism has treated amen. It did it in the creed section. Um, but amen means so be it, thus ratifying um, what we have asked. So be it. Um, well, this is the end of our series on the catechism. Um, I hope that this has been helpful and of... Um, of some value and benefit in your life. Um, you know, it again is a crucial text, this, this great gift um, from, from St. John Paul II, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, and from Pope Benedict, who as a cardinal helped in the editing of it, um, and then uh, um, our beloved Holy Father Pope Francis, who has recently put out a third edition of it, which is really... It's this, it's the, it is really essentially the same catechism um, of John Paul II, um, who himself had put out a second edition of it um, shortly after the first. Um, but, you know, we just give thanks to the Lord for this great gift, and I hope that this series can kind of help us to remember that, you know, this has been given to us for the authentic um, teaching of the faith, and hopefully... Um, we can allow it to form ourselves as disciples of Christ with a great strong knowledge of what we believe and what we profess and that we might hand this same truth on to our children 
um, both in Catholic education and in um, our PSR and CCD programs. Um, so as we end, um, let us just ask Our Lady to, um, to continue to, to help us to um, bear fruit from these great seeds which are planted in our heart by the truth of the Catechism. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.